0: I'm John Gardiner, and you're listening to the Beginner's Guide to Model Railroading. Model railroading is fun, you just have to know how to do it. In this episode, I'll be giving you the tools you need to make a track plan that best fits your interests and your layout space. I'm actually recording from Seattle, where I have been spending the summer before graduate school, and I'm so sorry, my life has been hectic. But what's been even more (laughs) telltale? Oh dear god, this episode grew too. So, between the two track plan workshop episodes, I have about 40 pages of material. So, anyway, moving on. Part 1 taught you how to design a track plan for realistic operation. However, I find it relevant to let you know that you should never forget that humans are an equally important consideration in model railroad layout design, so this episode will cover everything from the mechanics of fitting a layout into your room to providing for operator access to the artistic presentation of your layout. Before you proceed any further into designing a track plan, you should first figure out your modeler personality. John Armstrong, like all other people remembered in history books, was a white male whom was widely considered to be one of the two most famous model railroaders in history, the other being John Allen, of the gory and defeated fame, also a white male. Eh, Have you noticed a diversity problem yet in the hobby? Oh well. Whereas Allen was known for his modeling efforts so famous that they were responsible for diverting an ocean-going oil tanker, Seriously, pages 139 and 140 of the November 1994 Model Railroad Magazine. His Tuesday night operating sessions were so well known that the captain of the oil tanker decided to anchor overnight in Monterey Bay so that he could attend. Armstrong was known for his theory and his many publications of innovative and game-changing track plans earned him the moniker the Dean of Track Planning. Available from Kalmbach Publishing are PDF documents entitled The Best of John Armstrong, Volumes One Through Four. Each is a compilation of Armstrong's premier articles from the 1950s and 60s, and a very good read. In Volume 4 is one of the most influential articles I've ever read in the hobby, and it is an exposition of nine track plans, three each to a different model railroader personality. The three personalities are the engineer, the dispatcher, and the spectator. Here are descriptions of each in more detail. Listen along to see which personality best fits your own interests. The engineer likes a pike that provides as many of the basic components of operations as possible. Locomotive servicing, yard switching, running trains from town to town, dropping off and picking up cars, and perhaps a jaunt to the end of a branch line or a battle up a stiff grade. All ideally arranged such that every train gets to do a little of each. Most importantly, she likes the sensation of getting somewhere and accomplishing what a real railroad would do, and thusly prefers point-to-point operational schematics. She might take enjoyment from meeting other trains on a busy line, but the focus of her attention is on the train, its imaginary crew, and helping them to accomplish their assigned goal. Walk-around operation is preferable to the engineer because she likes to imagine that she is a member of the train crew, and the illusion is strengthened by always being trainside. The engineer's favorite type of action is usually smaller-scope operations, like on a branch line or a short line railroad, and the occasional switching puzzle. The dispatcher, on the other hand, is a person of action. She likes to see a railroad come to life with many trains all going about their separate tasks. Recall from previous episodes that a dispatcher is a person who arranges train movements across a railroad. Hence, the dispatcher personality type is someone who takes pleasure in setting a bunch of trains against each other, all with different, sometimes non overlapping goals, and arranging for them to get by just in the nick of time. The trains come in all sorts. Interyard yard transfers, local freights, yard and factory switchers, high-priority passenger trains, and occasional work trains to clog up the tracks. She likes to see the railroad operate as a whole. The dispatchers have an advantage, because nearly all published beginner track plans at least in some way cater to these desires. All you need is a passing track every so often so that a train can get off the main and let opposing trains pass. Her favorite type of action is busier mainline railroading, with long mainline runs, lots of trains, and plenty of locations for meets. Not so much is she particularly interested in the minutiae of switching, though individual trains can still partake in this element of operations. <coughs> Better described by the modern-day term rail fan, coined only after the article was published, bystanders are less interested in accurately portraying all the components of a railroad, so long as it just looks right. Imagine a roundy-round, war-on-Christmas tree layout, but on steroids. Multiple main lines, dramatic scenery, and trains winding through the landscape. Not as much are they interested in realistic operations, switching scenarios, or even being at the throttle of the trains. As such, bystanders prefer concentric loops of track that do not require intervening with trains in order to keep them running. Their favorite type of action is to sit back and watch the trains run, with little interference from the operator, allowing them to sit back and pretend that they are a scale rail fan, seeing the trains go about their day through the landscape they've modeled. Crowded scenes, excessive trackage, sharp curves, short trains, and mandatory switching are all to be avoided. As Armstrong said, rail fans most prefer the scene in front of them to make sense, but hardly care if there's 900 miles of track ahead of the train, or just a loop to bring it back around for a repeat performance. As the saying goes, out of sight, out of mind. Mind you, pursuing all three of these goals need not be mutually antagonistic. However... Understanding what your preferences are in running a railroad will better inform you how to build your own model railroad and, ultimately, make you happier. Personally, I am quite the engineer, and I have a very heavy fetish for the short line. If you found these descriptions interesting and want to learn more about the thought that goes into track plan design from the human modeler perspective, I would heartily recommend to you the four volumes of The Best of John Armstrong over any other publication. You can find them on Model Railway Magazine's Information Station or the Kambach Publishing Company online store section for downloadable articles, neither of which will be linked in the show notes because you have access to Google and I am lazy. Now... As high and mighty as all of the talk I've said of operations might be, the size and characteristics of your model railroad will always boil down most fundamentally to your room and how you decide to fit your layout within it. The most common shape of a layout for beginners is the eponymous 4x8 foot layout. This is primarily chosen because sheets of plywood are sold in that size, and it is the easiest to modify and get up and running. For example, you can buy the sheet, put it directly on the floor, build your railroad that way, and slide it under a bed when you're not using it. You could also make a basic frame and mount it on sawhorses. You could give it a dedicated frame and purpose-built legs fairly easily. You can add branches and extensions from all sides, and so on. You get the point. Many beginners think it's the easiest way to start. However, layout design expert Byron Henderson will personally travel to Long Island... (laughs) sorry, script is dated, to Seattle, and steal my trains if I don't mention that the modeling community at large believes that 4x8 foot layouts are an inefficient layout shape. The idea goes thusly. With a layout that is 4x8 feet, in order to access all portions of it to construct it, three sides must be open to aisles. If you take the square footage of the railroad and divide it by the square footage of the aisle space required to access it, layouts that are island types, or 4x8s with one side pushed up against the wall, will take more total layout space than an around-the-walls type layout with the occasional peninsula in the middle of the room. Let's do the math. A 4x8 foot layout is 32 square feet, but requires a 3 foot aisle on at least 3 sides. This means that it requires at least 60 square feet of aisle space, which translates to taking up an entire 10 by 11 foot room, or 110 square feet for those counting, without room for any additional furniture, features, expansions, etc. Now, take the exact same 4 by 8 foot sheet of plywood, rip it in half, and turn it into an L shape with two bulbs at either end to turn the trains around. The layout will be marginally bigger at 39 square feet, to accommodate the added turnaround bulges, but it will only require 38 square feet of aisle space. This totals to only 77 square feet of space, which is a 30% space savings and leaves nearly 40 square feet left over in that 10 by 11 foot room for other purposes, be it additional layout space for later expansion or non-layout related furniture. The 4 by 8 foot layout has a very peculiar place in the hobby ethos. Even though this mathematical argument proves that they are inefficient, many beginner layout plans created by the hobby press are of the 4x8-foot design. This is most likely because some of the main people or organizations responsible for designing such beginner layouts, such as the hobby press or outreach organizations, are also very likely to construct them for traveling display purposes. With such being the case, it makes far more sense to put a 4x8 foot layout in the back of a van than it does to disassemble two or more walls of a room and put them in the back of a van. Personally, I don't view the island-type layout with quite the same abhorrence as some modelers. In fact, I would recommend a 4x8 foot layout for beginners whom want to start with something very simple and well-established and whom can spare the space but I agree that it's probably a better idea to make an around-the-walls-or-shelf layout, especially if space is at a premium or if you don't have a dedicated hobby room. Like I alluded to above, the most common solution to this beginner conundrum is to take a 4x8-foot sheet and have the hardware store rip it in half, and then to take those two resultant 2x8-foot sheets and make an L-shape with them up against two walls. If you take a little extra wood and make balloon bulges at either end, you can still have continuous running. But the main point is that, for the exact same amount of scenic layout space, or technically a tad more, the layout as a whole takes up less space in your room and is more versatile by giving you longer straight sections to work with before curves screw you up. Now, I feel it especially important to note that, even though you are now freed from the constraints of the 4x8 foot sheet of plywood, this is not an excuse to build a basement or even room-filling empire right off the bat. Whatever you do, still start small. From my own experience, never try to build more than 40 square feet of layout at a given time, lest you spend literal years on bench work and track before you get to build even a single structure. The basic message for the beginner to note is that you can build a 4x8 foot layout if you want and have lots of space, and you most likely will be able to build a very satisfactorily operating railroad on said 4x8 foot sheet of plywood. But... If you have any designs on building a model railroad outside of a cutesy little display layout for the holidays, to entertain your children, to watch trains run on, or to test your layout construction skills before you commit to something bigger, it will most likely be in your best interest to keep an open mind when it comes to layout space. When it comes to actually designing the shape of your layout within a given space, there is no one method that I can give you. In fact, there may be no one correct shape for any given space. Most layout spaces have a set of quirks or constrictions that must be worked around, such as support columns, odd corners, doorways and windows to which access must be maintained, etc. When it comes to constraints like these, think about them and come up with the most efficient possible uses of their space and what can be put in those constrained areas. Sketch down all such constraints in your room and then try connecting the dots in the most efficient way possible. Your layout should start to take shape in front of you. Once again, though, there may be many possible successful layout shapes in a particular space. If you have come up with several such ideas, you can then choose between them by looking at what you want in a track plan. For example, if you have a choice of a long space or two shorter spaces broken up by a peninsula, obviously the former is ideal for a large yard and the latter for two towns broken up by some free-running space in between. Thus, you would choose between them based on what you wish to put in that particular area. If you're having trouble coming up with shapes to fill your layout room, an old tool to use is the alphabet method, which, I promise you, dear iTunes editors, is absolutely unrelated to the other alphabet method, which would earn me an explicit warning on iTunes, please don't report me, I beg of you. This is simply where you use the letters of the alphabet to give you an inspiration for starting points of layout shapes. A la natural selection, sketch down a rough shape of each letter in your layout space and pick the ones that fit best. Then go back to the designs, exaggerate the shape of the letter a little to better fit the layout space, and repeat the selection process. The modern trend, though, for layout space usage, as once again alluded to in the 4x8 section, is towards walk-around or shelf layout design. So when all else is in doubt, stick the layout to the walls of your room and try to keep it under 30 inches wide. If you have the space and desire, try adding a peninsula here and there, but otherwise you can keep it simple. When it comes to fitting a layout in a space, there are several rules of thumb that will generally aid you in the design process. Space use tip number the one, related to above, is with respect to yards. Most yards will always be larger compared to the surrounding railroad, and most yards are always linear, if you have a long stretch of wall, unobstructed by windows, doors, utilities, etc., it is usually best to set this aside for your yard, as it will allow you the most freedom to create an accurate and smoothly functioning yard later. Space use tip number the two is for staging yard location. Because staging yards are, well, off stage, they needn't be scenic, pretty, or readily displayed. What's more, most modelers often have no qualms about punching holes through walls, given prior approval from the Department of the Interior, your spouse. Therefore, ideal locations for medium to large staging yards are in adjacent rooms, such as laundry rooms, utility rooms, attic, cubbies, garages, etc. So, when designing your layout, if you aim for it to be a linear from-here-to-there style, Try to keep the ingress points of both ends of the railroad adjacent to walls bordering such lightly used utility spaces. Even if you don't plan on building a staging yard right away, this planning trick will save you lots of effort later, because the only thing you'll need to do in the event that you do want to add a staging yard is to punch through the wall and add a turnout or two. I've operated on multiple layouts before, where such was not done, and it often required looping back over parts of the layout through which I had already traveled until I could reach the staging yard access track. This caused clogging of the mainline through the doubly used areas, and in one instance caused confusion over whether I was supposed to serve a certain town the first time I went through it or the second. Space use tip number the three. Though not directly related to spatial arrangements, it is strongly advised during this stage of layout planning to keep the orientation of your layout in mind. By this, I mean which side your railroad is viewed from. If you have a freelanced railroad, then you need pay this no mind. The most common example of layout orientation is when modelers who model prototype railroads that run east to west set their railroads to be viewed from the south side. Thus, when operators look at the trains, east is to their right, west is to their left, and north is away from the viewer, much like when looking at a map. This makes it very easy to figure out which trains are east and westbound, which aids in train priority, car routing, basic directional referencing, etc., as well as better orienting your operators in the model world. However, not all railroads are oriented this way for a variety of reasons. Firstly, north-south railroads obviously cannot bank on that preferred map-related orientation, but another, stronger reason may be the preferred orientation of particular scenes. For example, if a major scene is built right into a cliff face, it makes sense to put the cliff away from the viewer, such that we would be looking into it, rather than between the viewer and the trains, such that we would need to peer over it. An ironic proof of this, every single model of Hinton, West Virginia that I have ever seen, in person and in the hobby press, of which there are many, has positioned north to the left— This is because Hinton, a major yard on the famous Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad, was built with a big river on one side and a steep hillside on the other. It therefore makes sense to put the hills behind the yard, and to pretend that the viewer is a giant standing in the new river, being swept with the current to Ohio. Related to this, most modelers try to build all the scenes on their railroad from the same orientation. It's prototypically correct and often considered desirable for each train to enter a particular scene from the same direction as occurred on the prototype, but it also helps operators, because if east and west keep flipping from town to town, or if on a multi-level railroad from deck to deck, it can be confusing or lead to collisions, misroutings of cars, or the misrouting of entire trains. Space use tip number the four. Even if you don't think it, I absolutely guarantee you that you have space for a layout. Many model railroads have been designed and successfully built to integrate with other functions in the same room, most of them in the form of around-the-walls or shelf layouts. I have seen track plans designed for closets, for underneath beds on a trundle frame, for above a desk in a home office on bookshelves, in family rooms, above a television, and one of my personal favorites, around a teenager's bedroom by going over top a desk and underneath a top bunk-only bunk bed. So, moral of the story, before you commit to a 4x8-foot layout, or before you bemoan that you don't have space for a layout, look around your home and find a place that might be able to hold a model railroad while also serving other functions. I guarantee you that you have one. As mentioned in the previous episode's section on yards, it is very important to be able to reach all areas of a layout. All track should be accessible. Not all track needs to be within reach of the main aisleways, but you should at least have an access aisle, access pit, or pop-up scenery hatch. This is necessary for two reasons. First, you obviously need to access the track in order to lay it. But more importantly, if there's a problem with the track or if a train derails, you'll need to access it to remedy the problem. For these same reasons, you should also avoid hidden track wherever possible. Tunnels are fine and can be interesting scenic features, but if you can't access their insides, they can become an operating liability. There are two solutions to this. The first and simplest is to include tunnel gaps, which are small breaks and tunnels to make one long tunnel into two shorter ones. This makes it such that no tunnel is longer than a train length, so that, if something goes wrong, at least one end of the train is accessible to pull the rest of it out. Another solution is to create access panels on the side of the layout, or to make sure that you can reach every inch of hidden track from underneath the layout. Even though this solution is more labor-intensive, both to construct and to remedy derailed trains, it is more popular because it allows for longer tunnels and more extensive hidden trackage. A final note on layout access comes when building multi-deck railroads. While building a railroad with multiple levels is generally inadvisable for beginners, if you find your heart set on making a layout with additional decks, make sure to keep the decks sufficiently far apart, at least a good 20 inches railhead to railhead, ideally more. I once operated on a layout where there was less than 10 inches of vertical clearance between its decks, and it was a particularly unenjoyable experience, especially because I am tall and they had too few chairs to sit on. Operating a railroad on your knees is not fun. My particular advice to you here is that this is a dicey enough topic for experts to pull off successfully. So, as much as is possible, try to avoid having layouts with prolonged multiple deck configurations. When it comes to designing a layout, there are some concerns that relate to operations that are better viewed from the perspective of the modeler for whom the layout is being designed. One such concern is that of train and siding length. In order to successfully pull off the passing of trains, sidings, obviously, need to be long enough to accommodate the trains. This, however, is related more to what type of railroad you are modeling. Modern railroads often run trains in excess of a mile long, or, if you are caught at a railroad crossing with somewhere important to be, 10 miles long. While the exact specifics will vary from scale to scale, the longest of modern trains are usually around 30 cars when put into model form. On the exact opposite end of the spectrum, some Depression-era short lines were known for towing a train along composed of only a single freight car and a caboose. Obviously, most beginner railroads will model the smaller end of the spectrum, but you should still evaluate the space you have, the predicted sizes of your yard and staging yards, and the number and size of industries you wish to serve in order to evaluate your desired train length. Normally, the smallest size a train can get before it starts to look toy-like is about four or five cars, and anything longer than ten cars would be appropriate for a mainline-length train. So for the beginner, you'll likely be sticking to somewhere in that range for your maximum train length. Don't forget that siding length, unlike the movie Unstoppable, should be measured from clearance point to clearance point, not turnout to turnout, so that a train of the maximum length of the siding's capacity will not foul either turnout and allow other trains to pass by unobstructed. Also, don't forget that the term car length is used in the yard when assembling a train, so the actual length of the train, from a passing siding perspective, is actually its car length plus the lengths of a locomotive and, if necessary, a caboose. A nifty trick that some people use is to have the arrival-departure tracks of their yard be exactly as long as the shortest siding, such that, if a train doesn't fit on the arrival and departure track, it will be known that it won't fit on sidings elsewhere on the railroad, and cars should be pulled and assigned to a later train. An oft-overlooked element of railroad design is town placement. One consideration with town spacing is from the people perspective. When it comes to placing towns, yards, etc. along your railroad, try to never stack towns such that more than one town is operated from the same aisle placement. For example, if you have an aisle with two major yards on either side, if the aisle isn't wide enough, the yard crews from both towns will constantly be bumping into each other, and other operators whom are just passing through won't be able to get by. Thus, to prevent human gridlocks on your railroads, try not to place towns such that two towns would use the same designated aisle space. Additionally, try to make wider aisles for those serving larger towns or yards to allow the more people using that aisle space to maneuver. Another consideration with town spacing is from the railroad perspective. Many modelers don't like it if the train is arriving in one town and its caboose is just leaving another. Close town spacing along the railroad mainline can destroy the illusion that the train is going somewhere. I know from my own experience that it is very tempting to try and fit as much as you can on your railroad, but I promise you that a layout which breathes is always preferable. If you don't like it, it's always easier to go back and add something in than it is to take something out, so consider keeping towns at least a train length and a bit apart, preferably more. If, though, you absolutely must place towns closely together, such as on a 4x8 foot layout, consider using visual tricks to obscure the view from one town to the other, such as backdrops or hills and tunnels. This can at least give the illusion of distance in the absence of real-world distance. Another very important consideration of layout space design are the large people that trains tend to drag around with them as they go about the layout. Aisles themselves should generally be no narrower than three feet. Two feet is the minimum width a human could pass through comfortably, but keep in mind this can create bottlenecks, so there should be sufficient space to pass on either side of the two-foot aisle. Normally, during an op session, barring yardmasters and switching jobs, most people will run multiple trains. In between each run, they will have to wait for another scheduled train to depart, so it's usually wise to have a place where they can park themselves while they wait and not be in the way of any active train crews. Some people go fully blown and furnish a crew lounge, but this can be as simple as a chair in an unused corner of the room or a space behind the yard where people won't interfere with the yardmasters. A final consideration from an operational perspective is to consider making the mainline in a walk-around configuration. Nearly all modelers nowadays try to design their mainlines such that you can walk around the layout and follow your train. An example of a walk-around style of mainline would be an oval, because you can follow alongside your train as it makes its way around the railroad. An example of a non-walk-around style of layout is a figure-eight, where every time the train crosses the middle, you have to run to the other side of the layout and then reverse your direction in order to follow alongside the train. That's not to say that the mainline can't take curves deep into the layout, or that the mainline must be perfectly straight and always next to the edge of the layout, but the idea is that you should never need to go running from one side of the layout room to the other just to keep up with your train. Walk-around designs aren't necessary, especially if you plan on operating your layout from a centralized control pit or tower, but they can make the layout more enjoyable to operate or watch trains on, and will make it much easier for multiple people maneuvering around the layout. As technical as model railroads might be, the act of scenicking them will always be an artistic endeavor. So it pays to design your railroad with artistic presentation in mind. The most important thing to keep in mind with respect to the artistic presentation of your railroad is to avoid cramming. I know that it's tempting to fit as many factories and yard tracks and towns as you can into your space, but if your layout looks like you made your track plan by upending a spaghetti bowl onto a piece of paper, or scenic to your city by putting downtown Chicago in a trash compactor, those extra industries, tracks, buildings, or mainline loops won't bring nearly enough satisfaction to counteract the dissatisfaction from the cramped look of the railroad. Basically, don't have too many tracks, and leave enough room for pleasantly-sized scenery elements. I practice what I preach. For my current layout, there is more track in the staging yard than there is on the railroad proper, and I wouldn't dare change it. Another modern artistic concept is sincerity. Saying that a scene is sincere means that the train passes through each scene only once on its journey from one end of the layout to the other, and that there's no conspicuous doubling back through the same scene twice. While I do not find this to be a mandatory feature, especially for beginner layouts, we can still learn some things from it. Namely that, if there are multiple rail lines visible from the same point on the layout, they should be adequately separated from each other, horizontally, especially, and vertically if possible, to make the scene appear less cramped and more realistic. This gives the air that each line is distinct from the other, and it maintains the illusion that you are still going from somewhere to somewhere else, not doubling back through where you have already been. Other options to achieve sincerity, or pseudo-sincerity, would be to alternatively hide each of the lines by using tunnels, hills, backdrops, or dense tree cover. For example, when a front railroad line has a town, you can bury the back railroad line behind a hill, or in some trees, or behind some buildings of the town. Similarly, if the back railroad line goes through a town, you can consider hiding the front rail line in a tunnel. However, if you must have two lines in the same scene, probably the best and simplest solution would be to make each line non-parallel to the other to make it look like each route is a prototypically different railroad. Or you could use a backdrop. The most common tactic, especially for island layouts and double-sided peninsulas, is to build a backdrop, which is a barrier to view painted to look like sky. It's basically a way to isolate one scene from another, thereby increasing the feeling of distance between the two. Many layouts increase their running distance by having long, winding peninsulas with elaborate, contiguous backdrops made of real-world photos stitched together in photo editing software to be hundreds of feet long. But for most beginner layouts, a simple hardboard barrier with blue paint could go a long way. The use of a backdrop prevents you from seeing both sides of the railroad at once, and it gives the sense that each side of the railroad is a different, spatially separated scene. This can be made use of to great effect, especially for small layouts. Backdrops can be used for everything from obscuring one side of the layout from the other to hiding more technical components of layout design, such as a staging yard, a loads-and-empties-out industry, or another form of sneakaway track. Most commonly, they are used on shelf layouts to increase the apparent depth of the scene. Even if your layout is a one-sided shelf layout, you should still have a backdrop, but the point is that you can use it to your advantage in the layout design process to hide unwanted things or to increase the perceived scene depth. And finally, the most easily overlooked thing is that you should design your railroad with scenery in mind. Going back to making the layout too cramped, if you are planning on having a downtown or a hill, make sure to include enough room to put the downtown or to avoid making the hillsides too steep. When making non-rocky hillsides, avoid slopes greater than 45 degrees. And if you must have a hillside steeper than that, either add retaining walls or a rocky cliff. The two simplest solutions to avoiding cramped scenes are to either give more space for each scene, or, if your space is limited, to reduce the scene complexity by removing buildings, industries, and unnecessary track work. When designing your scenery, don't forget to include changes vertically, both above and below the track level. Many beginners often forget that scenic features that drop away beneath the tracks, like underpasses, rivers, gorges, or just plain hillsides, are often considered just as interesting, if not critical, to the realism of the layout. If you don't plan for the verticality of scenery, your layout, when built, may have marvelous tall mountains and hillsides, but it will all go down to this artificially flat and inviolable surface, which will look unrealistic and toy-like. We will cover this more in a later episode on benchwork, but what most beginners opt to do is to lay a 4x8 foot sheet of 1 or 2 inch thick foam insulation board over top any pieces of plywood they might have. Then, later during the scenery phase of construction, they can carve out depressions in the foam to accommodate below-grade features. Now that you know how to design a model railroad, it's time to actually make a track plan. Start by going into your layout room, or space set aside for your railroad, with a pencil, graph paper, and a tape measure, and draw out a scale schematic of your layout room accurately to a quarter inch, including walls, angles, doors, windows, and the height off the ground of obstructions like power meters, door handles, windowsills, etc., if you are building an island-type layout, you still need to know how your layout will fit into the room. Like, for example, will you be able to maintain the minimum aisle width of 2-3 to three feet, or will the layout be too big? This is the most important step in designing a layout. My particular favorite scales for drawing track plans are thusly. If I'm just doodling, the square of a graph can represent an entire foot but if I want to be more detailed, then they can represent 6 or 3 inches. Of course, uh, the larger the scale, the higher resolution your track plan will be, but also the more paper it will take. When you are done measuring your room, keep the master copy of the layout room drawing, and photocopy it multiple times. Then, start doodling a variety of rough layout shapes, and then some track plans to fit in those shapes. Do this for a few days to get your creative juices flowing until you start to settle on a plan or a set of plans that roughly meets your fancy. During this process, make sure to keep in mind your minimum radius and turnout size to avoid getting your hopes up and cramming an unrealistic amount of stuff into your track plan. To avoid this, measure the length of one of the turnouts you plan to use in real life, and add an inch or so to its length when drawing it on paper. And, if your minimum radius is for example 18 inches NHO scale, draw to a minimum radius of at least 20 inches. When transferring your track plan into reality or a track planning software, this gives you much needed wiggle room to make IRL adjustments. Another nifty trick, if you're willing to invest the time in it, is to make a cardstock or cardboard templates for turnouts and your minimum radius to the scale of the room drawing. This will make it very easy to quickly draw out how your track can go together. Take my word for it, you don't really need to buy one of those fancy track planning templates to get the same result. When you are ready to start making a scale master track plan, you have multiple options. You could do it the old-fashioned way, with pencil and paper, but many modelers nowadays opt to use track planning software because it's more accurate, faster, can be printed out in one-to-one scale for later construction, and immediately adjacent to Facebook for procrastination. While there are many track planning softwares out there, ranging from free to over $100, my personal favorite is the free program SCARM, the simple, computer-aided railway modeler. It works on PCs without a hitch, and can work on Macs with a PC emulator software called Wine. I have yet to find a simpler, more intuitive, and, heh, freer software. SCARM has a bunch of YouTube tutorials, so I won't cover using it here, but the basic idea is that you start by drawing the size of your baseboard or layout table, and then you start placing track by either inserting real-world turnouts and track pieces from the company of your choice, or by making freeform flex track. All in all, SCARM is a system that I cannot recommend enough for designing a track plan, especially for beginners, in part because of its simplicity. Through all of this designing process, and probably before it begins, it's a very good idea to take another page from the notebook of John Armstrong and write out a list of what he called Givens and Druthers. Givens are real-world constraints you had to work with, like room size, budget, the position of windows and doors, etc., Druthers are the decisions you must make about what you want most. Before designing a track plan on commission, Armstrong would always have a client fill out a list of givens and druthers to get an idea of what their layout should look like, and, in the event of a needed compromise, a priority list to inform what should be preserved at all costs and what can be cut. I advise making a similar list of things you want in your model railroad while you're still in the process of planning it. Here are some sample subjects you should address in your list of givens and druthers. How much layout do you want to be working on? Do you want to do it in small chunks, or do you want to fill your basement right off the bat? What era and region do you plan to model? Will the railroad be based on an actual prototype, or will it be freelanced? What type of railroad do you want to model? Is it an industrial switching layout, a main line, a branch line, a short line? Will it have unit trains or mixed trains? Will there be passenger operations? Do you desire to model a particular industry subject, like steel, coal, lumber, or maritime operations? Do you want continuous running options? Do you want a railroad that can be operated point-to-point? Both? If you want a continuous running option, can you wait for it later as other portions of the layout are constructed, or does it have to be in the first segment? Do you enjoy switching or running trains on the mainline more? How many cars and industries do you want to have on your layout? Can you have a yard or a staging yard large enough to accommodate them? Are there commercially available locomotives, cars, buildings, and other products that fit the era, region, and subject you are modeling? Or do you need to do kit bashing or scratch building to get the desired final product? How many trains do you want to have running on the layout at a given time? Do you want to operate them all manually, or would you rather sit back and let them all run themselves without crashing into each other? Do you want a yard or locomotive servicing facilities, or can you live without them? How many people do you plan on operating the layout with you? Will you be a lone wolf modeler, or do you someday wish to have a complete cohort of operators join you? Do you want an option to set trains running in circles without interference, or are you okay with needing to attend to the trains? Do you want to make the layout portable or semi-portable, or are you okay with building it permanently into the room? Do you want any vast, open vistas, or are you okay with keeping the focus on the trains? And, finally, who will be viewing the layout? How tall are they, and will they be sitting or standing? A similar procedure to Givens and Druthers is to make use of Tony Custer's Layout Design Element, or LDE, philosophy. This is primarily of use to modelers of a specific prototype, but can really be utilized by everybody. The idea behind LDEs is to boil your prototype down to the most basic recognizable components needed to accurately portray and operate that stretch of the railroad, the eponymous layout design elements, and string them around the layout room from there. LDEs most often take the shape of small sketches of individual towns or any other noteworthy features, such as significant bridges, tunnels, junctions, buildings, anything in between. You can take these sketches and roughly arrange them around the layout space, and connect the, eh, dots with strings of track through nondescript open space. As you can see, there are lots of things to think about when designing a model railroad, and nearly all of them have different answers for different people. Probably the best advice I can give you is to go out and spend lots of time imbibing good track plans from good sources, such as track planning books or special issues. When it comes to this, go with a brand name source of a big publication. In my experience, internet web pages can be rather unreliable in presenting good track plans. I'd rather you already know what a good plan looks like before you go out perusing the internet, so that you can already pick out the wheat from the chaff on your own. As you look through track plans, don't just try to learn what makes a great plan great, but also keep an eye out for things that pique your own interest. For example, if you start seeing a lot of town arrangements or switching puzzle designs that catch your attention, consider sketching them in a track planning inspiration notebook. Also, if you are perpetually intrigued by a particular type of track plan, like those representing an inner-city industrial switching line, an ore mining railroad, a passenger shuttle operation, or anything else, you should take note that such might be your desired subject of modeling. But when you examine all the track plans, the thing that's most important is to keep an eye out for train movements. As you look at the plan, find where the trains would originate from, and follow them around the track plan to see how it would operate. This will usually reveal any glaring flaws, like difficult yard access or return loops in only one direction. Now, this was quite a lot of information, and it is quite seldom that anybody will ever get it right the first time around. So, if you are a beginner and don't want to work from a published track plan, you can design your own track plan and send it to me, and I will give you suggestions, either on or off the air. I'm here as a resource for you. Finally, though, I want to give you one last piece of advice, which, ironically, goes contrary to much of what I've said, but which will be the most relevant to you in all that you have left to do in the hobby. I grew up on the Model railroad magazine issues edited by Terry Thompson and Neil Basuguloff, and I will always remember those issues quite fondly. Though I may have had a few disagreements with Basugoloff's early style, namely his criminal underuse of commas, in time, I came to consider him one of the finest editors the magazine has ever known. In paging through some back issues I had recently acquired, I found an editorial written by Basugoloff in the March 2007 issue of Classic Toy Trains, which I think is more deserving of a spot in these two episodes than anything else I've put thus far. Here it is, edited only slightly for context and with a liberal application of commas. Moving to a new home in January 2006 gave me a chance to build a new layout starting with a clean slate. This new layout, I promised myself, would benefit from the lessons I had learned from building and operating my old layout. As soon as the moving van departed, I began staking out territory in our spacious basement. I couldn't wait to get started once the whole family was unpacked and settled in. But something happened as late winter turned to spring, and then into summer. Although I had drawn up a very nice track plan, a simplified version of a Harper's Ferry West Virginia plan created by famed model railroad designer John Armstrong, I wasn't motivated to start construction. From time to time, I'd modify the plan, always trying to tweak part of it in a way that never quite gelled. In the end, you'd hardly recognize it as an Armstrong-inspired drawing. But after a day or two of tweaking, my motivation dropped back to zero. June flew by, then July. By August, I grew concerned. If I couldn't sustain enough motivation to get started, how would I ever keep the ball rolling once construction was underway? I started to wonder if my trains would ever run again. One day at the office, I began absentmindedly doodling a track plan on a piece of paper. My scribbled lines had elements of the Armstrong plan that was languishing on my desk at home. But it also reflected what I wanted out of a toy train layout, regardless of what other hobbyists might desire. In five minutes, I was done. Two days later, my pencil doodle became a 15 by 17 foot O gauge track plan using computer track planning software. I was ready. I set a goal of installing basement ceiling tiles and track lighting above the layout by Halloween, and I finished one day early. A week later, I headed to a home center to buy wood for the benchwork, which will soon be complete. I gave myself a new goal of having a train running sometime before the staff of Classic Toy Trains and Model Railroader annually conducts a round-robin tour of each other's home layouts. What finally got me motivated? Turns out, it was the change in track plans. Instead of designing a layout that would be popular with my peers, I finally came up with a plan that suited just me. If you find yourself in the same unmotivated boat, throw away the track plan that meets someone else's needs better than yours. Make a prioritized list of what you want and what you don't need for your layout, sharpen a pencil, and grab a pile of scrap paper. Once you come up with a plan that suits your individual needs, you'll find that the motivation comes easily. I hope that, with these two episodes, I have given every beginner out there a great start to being able to successfully design a model railroad, Extra special thanks to our newest patrons, John Thyssen and Kenny Long. Thank you guys so much for your patience. If you have a question or comment, please email me at bgtmrring at gmail.com and visit our website at www.bgtmrring.org. If you like the show, please give me a good review on iTunes and subscribe to my podcast feed. If you did not like the show, do not say anything and contemplate the thought crime that you have committed. And now, as your reward for listening through my closing spiel, your modeler's vocabulary word for this episode is... Throttle artist. Noun. An engineer. Thank you all so much for listening, and thank you again for your patience. Happy modeling.